If you have your Bibles with you this evening, will you please open them up to the book of Luke, uh, chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. Book of Luke, chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. We're going to be continuing and starting, I don't know which one to say, but we're going to be continuing um, a series through a variety of different parables. And, and so the parables that we're going to be tackling over the next couple of months aren't ones that we are usually familiar with and the ones that we heard growing up in Sunday school, or maybe some of them will be, but they're kind of ob and out there. And so when I got the list, I went and chose the most familiar one <laughs> so the other guys can preach the harder stuff. Um, but yeah, we'll be looking at Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. I'll be re- reading from the English Standard Version. It goes as follows. Someone in the crowd said to him, said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brothers to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me an arbitrator over you? Judge or arbitrator over you. And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentiful, and though he... Though he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have uh, nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, have ample good. uh, I say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Lord, we come before you this evening. Lord, not because this is just a routine, um, not because this is what we do on Sunday nights, um, but Lord, we are desperate to hear from you. We are desperate to hear you speak into our lives. We are desperate to come away with the greater sense of who Jesus is and what he has done for us on the cross. And so I pray that this evening, Lord, that you would just speak volumes of your grace and love to us, that we would just come away knowing this Jesus more. But we pray, Lord, that tonight won't be about me or about the words that I say or what I want to happen or what we want to happen, but what the King of Kings wants to happen that we will come away with the greatest sense of your plan and your purpose for our life. We pray and graciously ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so at the beginning of this chapter, in chapter 12, we see that Jesus um, is speaking to a massive crowd. There's thousands and thousands of people who are gathered around to hear him teach. They're pushing on top of each other, um, trampling on each other. And as Jesus is teaching wisdom and life and God, someone shouts out amongst the crowd, Teacher, tell my brother to divide his inheritance with me. And Jesus just says to the man, Man, who am I? Am I a judge and arbitrator over you? Who made me that? But Jesus doesn't just leave it at that. He doesn't just stop there and dismiss the man. He takes this wonderful opportunity that this man has now presented to him to tackle an issue. And so he, he doesn't just speak to the man anymore, but he uh, speaks to them. He speaks to his disciples and the thousands that are listening. And he says these words, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, 
for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. But again, Jesus doesn't just stop there. He feels like he has to hammer home the point even more. And what he does is he starts to tell a parable that people might remember or be able to understand a little better. And so he talks about a rich man who had a fantastic time in harvest season, whose crops were so plentiful that his current barns weren't big enough to store all of it. What a great problem to have, right? And so he thinks to himself, what should I do? What should I do? Oh man, I'm going to tear down these little barns and I'm going to build big ones. And then I'm going to fill them up. And once they're filled with all of my crops and all my goods... I'm going to tell my soul, relax, eat, drink, be merry. But Jesus brings in another character into this, and that's God. And God says to him, comes in with the humdinger, he says, fool, tonight your soul is required of you. And all these things that you have planned, all these crops that you have, all these goods, whose are they going to be? And Jesus concludes who this rich man is by saying, we are that rich man if we store for ourselves treasures on heaven, but yet are not rich in God. So Jesus tackles this real important issue, or this issue of covetousness, coveting. But why does Jesus make and stir up such a big fuss about it? I mean, if we had to take a survey this evening and we had to I said, everyone get a pen and a piece of paper and write down one sin in which you feel that we as a church need to uh, worry about, we as a church need to preach on and talk on more, or even as a society, as a nation, as a world, as, as the worldwide church, what should one sin should we focus on? I can guarantee that if we had to put it on a pie chart, that covetousness would probably not even be mentioned. And if it was, it would probably have to fall under the other section, other, because it was so small. But yet Jesus takes this opportunity with thousands of people around him where he could be speaking about God and the kingdom, where he can be speaking about the coming of the Messiah, and yet he takes this opportunity to talk about covetousness. Why? And even if we have to think about coveting in, 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 with respect to the Ten Commandments, coveting gets nodded and cracks in there as well. I mean... I know it's the 10th one, but it still makes it in. And if we had to think of the, the last six, the ones that have to do with our interaction with people, we, we've got honor your father and mother, um, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, and do not covet. Now those first five, I mean, they hurt people. And even if we had to do them a little bit, we would still get in trouble. If you had to just a little bit... Um, to dishonor your father and mother, you're going to get grounded or hardy. You just, just a little bit uh, steal from your boss at work probably is going to get you fired and thrown into jail. Just a little bit committing adultery, your wife's going to be seriously upset. Just a little bit of murder is highly frowned upon. But just a little bit of covetousness? I mean, what, Why? Why such the big fuss, Jesus? Why is covetous not such a big fuss? And well, I think what we need to do first in order to help us understand why Jesus has highlighted it, put it in italics, made it bold, why has he made it such a big thing? And, and to define John Piper defines it as follows in his book, 
battling unbelief, and if you can get hold of it, I suggest that you do. He says this, covetousness is desiring something so much. Covetousness is desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in God. Covetousness, the opposite of covetousness, is contentment in God. So when our contentment in God decreases, covetousness increases. And this is why in Colossians 3 verse 5, um, we see that Paul calls covetousness idolatry. He goes and says, put to death all these earthly things. And he goes and lays out a bunch of things that you, you should put to death. And then right at the end, he says, and covetousness, which is idolatry. It's idolatry because where the heart should be getting um, its, its contentment, it's starting to seek and look for it elsewhere and trying to find it elsewhere. But it should be finding that contentment in God. And so essentially, it's a heart that is divided, a heart that's seeking after two gods. It's, it's idolatry. And that's why it's such a big issue. Because while it might seem as something small in which we just desire, it ultimately is pulling us away from the king of kings to something else. It's a big issue. But if you're anything like me, and I'll be honest this evening, that covetousness is something in which um, we probably all struggle with a bit, but we are quick to um, justify it, right? Oh man, but I just need this. I, this I, man, it's okay for me to get this because I desperately need it. If I can get this, then I'd be happy. This is something that's good. This is ambition, Joe. I mean, this is what I want. And yet, so we can quickly justify our need to get it and do that. So what are some of the dangers when it comes to covetousness? And we're going to just look at four um, this evening, and then we'll tackle on how should we fight this. And the first one is that you should watch out for covetousness is because it never brings lasting satisfaction. It never brings lasting satisfaction. The promise of covetousness is this, is that if we pursue it, if we get this one thing, then we will be happy. Man, if I could just look like that person looked, I would be such a happy person. If I could have that career, oh man, I would have no worries. If I could just be liked by these people, man, my life would be so much better. If I could just have this amount of money, have this car drive, um, this vehicle, have this house, go on these vacations, whatever it might be, we justified by going, man, I'm going to be happy in having it. This is the promise that covetousness brings. And the problem with that is that it does not. It might bring satisfaction for a while, it might bring contentment for a while, but it is, it's fleeting, it's quick, it's gone. It's a flash in the pan. And then we need more and have to seek out more and more and more. And Jesus points out the reason for this in, when he addresses the people. He says this, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Why? For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Here is the creator of life saying that life is not about gaining much. Life is not about getting yourselves loads of possessions, achieving certain goals that you desire for yourself. It's not about those things. And if you seek that and go for that only, what you're going to find is not contentment not lasting satisfaction, because the reason why I have made life is not for those reasons. 
and we are bitterly disappointed. And if the word of God needs any backing whatsoever, we can just grab all the people that you think, man, if I had that life or I had what they had, and we had to put them in the room and we had to remove those who find contentment in God out of it, you would find that a majority of them are not satisfied or unhappy. They don't have hope. They don't have the security in which you think you would get if you had just that. It's not lasting. It's fleeting. The satisfaction that it promises to give will disappear. And the second issue with covetousness is that it chokes off all your spiritual life. There's a parable in uh, Mark 4, verse 1 to 20, one of the ones that we won't be addressing, and it's the parable of the sower. And Jesus tells about a man who has seed and the soil's prepared and he goes and he uh, scatters soil, uh, scatters, scatters seed all over the soil. And the seed lands in a variety of different soils and as a result, different things happen to the seed. Luckily for us, Jesus goes on to interpret uh, interpretate, that for us. And uh, he says uh, that the seed that was being scattered is the word of God. Um, the soil in which it lands in, he describes it differently, but essentially, yes. And there are a, a variety of different things that happen to that seed. And one of them is that it lands where there are thorns. Um, and what are those thorns? And he interprets it as follows. He says, the thorns choking the seed are cares of the world and deceitful, deceitfulness of riches and the cares of other things. That's what covetousness is about, is that it's seeking these things. And and as a result, our spiritual life, the seed that is sown, the word of God that is sown into us gets choked out. Now, this has an implication for two different types of people here this evening. The first is if you are seeking Christ, you, you say, man, I'm not a Christian, but I'm here to figure out whether or not this God thing is real or not. Covetousness will be the thorn that chokes out your spiritual life in the sense that when the seed is laid in you, when you hear the word of God, when Jesus Christ is presented to you as the Savior, as the one who's died for your sins, as the one who will give you life and life abundantly, a fullness of life and a purpose of life in Jesus and Jesus alone, you hear that, but yet you go and go, but man, I desire this more. This promises contentment and satisfaction in Jesus, but yet this here is something that I want more, and therefore you do not choose to follow Christ, but rather you choose to follow something else. Covetousness, covetousness will ultimately destroy any form of you being able to cross the line of faith. The second thing is some of you have crossed the line of faith. You do believe in Jesus, that seed is so, and you do know him, you are saved, you are going to be with him in heaven, but yet we do not grow into the men and women which he desires us to be because of covetousness in our lives. So as the preacher preaches, as you spend time in God's word, reading and studying, what happens is that you go, Lord, this stuff is tough. Man, what you require of me is too difficult for me to do. I can't do this stuff. Because that would mean I have to give up this or this or that. I just don't know if I'm willing to do that. Lord, this is important to me. And I know what you want is for me to get the things that are important to me. So I'm going to pursue this rather than that. And we never grow into the men and women that God intends us to be because we desire other things other than what God has for us. Man, it's going to choke out our spiritual life. The third danger of covetousness is that it results in sin. 
Paul says in 1 Timothy 6 verse 10, a well-known verse often misquoted, that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Covetousness for money is the root of all kinds of evil. Ultimately, we want it so much, we need to get this thing that we are willing to hurt people and do a variety of different sins in order to get it. James gives us as an example of this in James 4 verse 2. He says that you covet and cannot have, so you fight and wage war. We end up sinning because we want something so desperately. And instead of growing closer to God, we instead draw further and further away in order to go and pursue this other idol in our life. And lastly, covetousness will ultimately fail us in our deepest, darkest time. When we need contentment the most, we will not have it. We see this in, in this parable here. This man has gained much. He's, he's got wealth. His barns are full. He's taking an early retirement. He's going to relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And yet God says to him, tonight your soul is going to be taken from you and his wealth and his possessions, the things that he has sought after, cannot change that one little bit. And when you need contentment the most, when you need hope and security the most, when you are at your deathbed and you're going to die, covetousness is a fleeting friend that will run away. Fly out the window. will leave you and abandon you. And you will have no contentment, no hope, and no security because that can only be found in Christ. Hugely important for us. Okay, Joe, so, so man, covetousness is bad, so how do we fight it? So how do we fight this covetousness? Well, again, I think we should, I just want to reiterate and remind us that, that the fight against covetousness, well, the promise of covetousness is this. If you get me, there is satisfaction and contentment, right? That's where you're going to get if you pursue me and get me. So in order to fight this lure, we need to fight it with a greater lure, a greater sense of satisfaction, a greater sense of contentment. Because then we're going to go, man, if I weigh up the two options, that one promises this, but this one promises something much better. And so I'm going to pursue that. So how do we do that? The answer is pretty simple in the Sunday school answer. It's found in Jesus. In, in John 6, we see that Jesus has fed the 5,000, probably uh, just men at the time. There's probably a whole lot more women and uh, children there as well. So about 10,000 people or so, plus minus, we don't want to share, with uh, uh, five loaves and two fish. He's done this amazing, miraculous miracle. And uh, Jesus' value up in the eyes of society just like goes, shoots up. Because not only was Jesus a great teacher and could heal you from your sicknesses and cast out demons, but now he gave you free food as well. So people are super stoked. They absolutely love this new Jesus. And at the end of the day, um, they all head home, they go to bed, and through the night, through a variety of different events, uh, Jesus and his disciples cross to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But people wake up the next day and they go, Okay, we're hungry. Where's this Jesus? So they start seeking for him. They start looking for him. And they can't find him anywhere. And a bit of a panic arises. And people jump in boats and start heading off everywhere. And a group of these people that were seeking Jesus found him. And they run to him and go, Teacher, we've been seeking you everywhere. We've been looking for you. Well, while this might seem like a good thing, Jesus turns to them and points out their motives he says to them, you've been seeking me not because you've seen the signs and understand who I am, 
but you've been seeking me because you want your fill of loaves. He says to them, but don't look for food that, um, that perishes. Look for the food that is eternal. I can just imagine their eyes just lit up. Because here's this Jesus that fed us with five loaves and two fishes yesterday. This is an amazing miracle. Now he's saying that there might be food that you only have to eat once. Oh man, that would be great. Just to give you a bit of insight into Alyssa and I, my, uh, our marriage is that we often drive home after work every night and go, so what's for supper? Oh man, I don't know. What do you want to eat? Oh, I don't know. How great would it be? Just go, meh, it's okay. We don't have to eat tonight. We can see if we're not, it's fine because we're not going to starve. You can say that to the kids as well. Mom, what's for supper? Meh, nothing. And they'll be completely fine. It will be fantastic. And so they, they get so excited. They, they misunderstand what Jesus is talking about here. And they go to him, so tell me, where can I get this? What work do we need to do in order to receive this bread? And Jesus says to them, you have to believe in the one that God has sent. You have to believe in me, essentially. For I am the bread of life. And whoever eats of this bread will never hunger and will never thirst. And the word life that he uses in I am the bread of life is not bios, where we get the word biology from. It's not a physical thing. It's the word zoe. It's, a, it's an eternal life. It's a spiritual life that Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, in me, you find life satisfaction. In me, you find life's purpose. That if you pursue me and follow me, you will be content because this is what life is about. This is what I offer. You can follow me and you will have the satisfaction that you so desperately long. The covetousness and the possessions might promise that, but that what life is not about. It's about me and in me you find this fullness and satisfaction. So awesome. That the death of Jesus on the cross was not only to save us from sin and one day that we might be in eternity. Yes, it saves us from sin for sure, but it also gives us on this side of the grave a life of purpose and satisfaction that is only found in him. Church, that is grace upon grace upon grace because this is what Jesus offers. But I realize that even as I say this, as I talk about, hey man, there's this Jesus that gives you a life of satisfaction that there are those of us in this room that might have never tasted that before. And as a result, you're going, well, I know you say Jesus gives this, but you've never tasted anything else other than what covetousness offers. And so what happens is you're going, I know this gives me satisfaction and contentment. Yes, it might be fleeting and I can seek more, but I've tasted this. I haven't tasted this. So what often happens is we go to the thing that we know best and we don't go to Jesus. We don't run there because this is where we have comfort. Even though it is there to destroy us, even though it is a liar, that's where we run because that's where our experience is. And so what do we need to do in order to be able to run to that? And it's the simple answer of faith to be able to step out in faith. And for those of you who do not follow Christ, what is needed is for you to be able to understand who this Jesus is, his primary work for us. That he died for us on the cross so that we might be able to come to him and have eternal life. 
But the gift of that was pure grace upon grace. That is nothing that we deserve to get it. In fact, he takes his puni- uh, the, our punishment upon himself and in doing so pours out on us unconditional love and mercy. This is who this Jesus is. And for those of us who have crossed the line of faith and do know this Jesus, what's important for us is to get to know that more regularly. To get to know this Jesus more as we spend time in his word, as we, as we go through hardships, as we, um, as we come to church, as we spend time in Christian community, as we get to know this person of Christ more, that he is faithful, that he is able, that he is loving, that he is merciful, that he is gracious, that he is trustworthy. And when we get to know this character of Jesus, oh man, then we are able to choose this option of Jesus. Because the promises that he has made are something in which we can trust because now we trust the person. But if our image of who Christ is is poor and we lack trust and faith in who Jesus is, what often happens is we lack trust in his promises because the character and the person is not something in which we hold too well. And so then we run to this option because you're promising this Jesus, but I'm not too sure if I can trust you. It's an issue of faith. It's an issue of belief. And so we run here. But man, we need to get to know this Jesus better. Because what he has done for us on the cross is that we might have satisfaction. That we might have life to the fullness. Not necessarily in possessions, but in contentment and in joy, in hope and security. Regardless of situations. Whether good or bad. Whether you're sick or healthy. Christ brings contentment. This is awesome. And I said this a couple of weeks ago when I preached, faith is most secure when it is centered on who Jesus is. Let's seek out who that Jesus is because then we're able to look at these two options and we're able to go, man, this one promises me satisfaction and contentment, but it's a liar. But here is a God who is able, who is king, who's died for me on the cross. And he promises that in him is a life that is lasting and is satisfactory, that is content. Which option am I going to choose? It's obvious it must be this one. It might be hard, but I trust in him because his character is one that I can trust. And so we find contentment in Jesus. And for those of us who have tasted this a bit, sometimes we run that direction again. But as we taste of this Jesus, we look back on our covetousness and we realize, man, that is like a stale bread poloni sandwich. That's what it offers. But on this side, Jesus' side is an endless buffet of all the things that you enjoy that will satisfy you and you won't get fat. It's great. Just get to satisfy you with Jesus. This is what Jesus offers. Man, church, Jesus says in John 10, in closing, Jesus says in John 10, verse 10, I have come to give life and life abundantly. That the things that come from the hand of Jesus bring life that is abundant. That's his promise. That's his promise. And we can hold to these truths 
and we can repeat over and over and over again things like, Lord, I incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Psalm 119, verse 6. We can take the promise of 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. There is great gain in godliness with contentment. There is great gain in godliness with contentment. We can say Hebrews 13, verse 5 and 6. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with all that you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Oh, thank you, Jesus, for awesome promises. And we can trust you because you are a trustworthy God. Let us pray. Lord, we are just so grateful for the grace that you have shown upon us on that cross. That in Jesus there is life and life to the full. That you have died for us so that our sins might be forgiven, but also that we might experience the riches of knowing the King of Kings. The life that is satisfied in true. I ask, Lord, that you would help us, those of us who struggle with covetousness of a variety of different things, that you will show us and let us be able to see the lie that it is. And Lord, would you stir in us a faith in you, trust in who you are, that you're a God who is able, who is faithful, who is un has unconditioning love upon us and is grace, gracious and merciful. And I pray, Lord, that we would get to know that so that we can have faith in you that we might be able to seek you wholeheartedly so that we might experience the purpose of life in Jesus Christ. Would you give that to us, I pray. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.